So in the last class, we were studying the slokas from fourth to eighth of the third chapter of Srimad Bhagavad Gita. So as we have seen that the third chapter deals with Karma Yoga. And till the last class, we saw that the Karma Yoga, which doesn't enter the, the spiritual dimension of our existence, even for all, those who even are not the believers, even for them, the Karma Yoga is applicable. The basic idea was that whatever you do, do it with full focus, full concentration, be performance-oriented, not result-oriented, so that way what happens that you are freed from all worries and tension. You're in the present, you're focused. And that focus takes you to a state of flow. As an example, as we were relating, let's suppose take the case of a surgeon who is operating on the patient. For the time being, he's so focused. If the operation is, if the procedure is very complicated, maybe it's for seven or eight hours the procedure is going on. We will find that the surgeon for the time being has forgot all sorts of tiredness. His legs are not aching. He's not, he's not aware of hunger, thirst, tiredness. Only after the procedure is over, then suddenly he finds that he's terribly tired, he's terribly hungry, he's thirsty. So what happened as his mind was intensely focused on the operation. From where he got that focus? From the necessity. So in our life, unless we have a purpose, we can never have that focus. Most of us complain that in meditation, we don't have focus. Why we don't have focus? Sri Ramakrishna gave a very simple answer that suppose there is some mounds of gold in the next room, which is locked. And a thief is sitting in this room. He knows very well that there is a mound of gold, bricks of gold. Can he rest 
quietly. He will be just always waiting when I get the chance to break the lock and get all those treasures. So we say we believe in God. We say we believe that we are the Atman. But do we really believe it? Because if we were really uh, believing on the fact that the treasure is within, which is the source of eternal joy, all this trivial happiness in this life is nothing compared to that perpetual source of happiness, if we can get established in it. Can we rest just the way we are living the life, rest assured that when it happens, it will happen? It's impossible. So as we don't have that sense of necessity, we are actually quite happy. Though we say that we need spirituality, but our way of life shows that we are quite happy with the dealings of the day-to-day -day life. If we really had that intensity, that would have given the sense of necessity. Just the way the surgeon has that sense of necessity because he knows that a little lack of concentration will be at the cost of the life of the patient. Because the operation which he is doing, it needs tremendous skill, tremendous focus. So this necessity gives him that focus. And once he is in that focus, everything falls off. Because the mind, a part of the mind is needed to take care of what to speak of the external activities, even the bodily activities, what's going on, your hunger, your thirst, <clears throat> everything is the biological alarm <clears throat> that says that it is time for your food to take that you take food that finds expression as the pangs of hunger and it needs a part of your mind to be focused to it. And that portion of the mind also has been taken away by your focus, the focus on that your procedure which you're going through, which you're doing. So everything falls off. And in Yoga Sutra, they speak of Videha. Most of us translate Videha that after the death, you, though you continue with your sense of limited individuality, but you need not have to come down to this plane of existence. You can remain in that contemplative state for ages together. But we need not have to interpret it as a post-mortem state of existence. We can interpret the state of Videha even when we are living. That when we do any action, which is performance-oriented, which is not result-oriented, thereby I can get rid of the worries and the tensions and I'm just focused on what I'm doing it doesn't mean that I shouldn't have any goal. I thought of the goal at the beginning of my journey, and then I forget the goal. Now I am meticulously busy with the steps that has to be followed. And I know it very well. Once the goal has been set in, I can forget. Now forget about it. Now the steps, if I do just take the steps meticulously, the goal is just waiting for me. I need not have to worry about it. So be focused. It doesn't mean that you did not have an aim. You have an aim, but forget about the worries. Most of us just simply dissipated our energy by worrying, which gives us no result. Simply by worrying about the future, the future is not going to change. What is going to happen is going to happen. Simply I'm sitting and worrying. It doesn't in any way can be productive. So why waste my energy just in worrying? I have fixed my goal. Now I forget about it. Now I meticulously take care of each and every step with full focus. And that, for
for the first time will give you the test of happiness. In this life, the only equation of happiness is focus. You will find the more you are distracted, you are unhappy. The more you are focused, when your mind is focused in doing anything, a unexplicable, you may not, you cannot explain that from where it is coming, the joy comes. What happens actually the mind is the clouding factor. The joy is something, happiness is something which is the essence of our being. It is always there. The distractions of mind clouds it, it filters it out. When we are focused, naturally all the, this, the clouding factor is gone. The perpetual bliss comes from within. So the more you are focused, the more you will find in life that you are happy. Even in our sensual pleasures of life, it is a focus that gives you happiness. You will, if you are engaged in some lawsuit and you sit for your food and you're just thinking about the results, which what is going to happen, what whether I'm to win the case or I'm going to lose, you will find that you even cannot enjoy the food. If there is no salt, most probably have not realized. You have just simply grabbed the food and went. <clears throat> so even for our day-to-day -day life, for any activity, even if it is a sense of pleasure, the focus is necessary. Unless your mind is focused on the thing, you can never enjoy. So the more it is focused, the more it is happy. But the problem with the sense of pleasure, the moment you are satiated, whether it's food or something, your pursuit goes, you cannot continue with it. So you cannot continue with that type of happiness for long. For the morning, most probably for hours, you were cooking the food, but in half an hour, it's over. And then what do you do with your time? But if you have learned the art of doing the work with full focus, whatever it may be, what you're doing is not important. How you're doing is important. Whether it is the sweeper sweeping the street or it is the administrator of the king ruling the kingdom, both may be the same, in the same way, both may be pitiable if they're distracted. And the king with all his wealth can be extremely pitiable if he's always distracted. It's full of expectations, what to, how to get more wealth, how to uh, annex others' kingdom. His, and the sweeper, just by sweeping the street with full focus can be the happiest person in the world. So how you do, that's more important. What you do is not important. So if happiness is the goal of life, we must know this art. And that's the thing which we find in the eighth sloka. Bhagavan was speaking of that you can enjoy the state of naishkarma, not by abstaining from action. The naishkarma, the state of naishkarma, actionlessness, you can enjoy the state of actionlessness only after you have started the action. And as in the last class we were discussing, many of the interpreters interpret it again in a way which doesn't speak of encompassing our entire life with the concept of spirituality which speaks of abhudaya as well as nisraya, as my own emancipation as well as the good of the world. How they translate, most of the places they will translate that karma is made for chitta shuddhi. Once the chitta shuddhi, once your chitta, your mind is cleansed, then the action can follow. Then you can go to the state of karma. But in Bhagavad Gita, nowhere, in the end of the 18th chapter, you know, there is nowhere the mention of abstaining from action. 
Even in this chapter, they will give the example of the King Janaka, that even after realization, he continued with the actions and he was called Videha because he has learned the art of doing action where he, can, he has no expectations. He's just doing the work for the sake of the work itself. And that leads to a state of Meshkarma, where as we were giving this example of the surgeon, though he is operating, he's, he has totally forgot about himself. The action has become spontaneous. As even in our day-to-day -day life, we give the example that when the car is lying on the, your carport or the garage, it is not doing any work. But is the car meant to be in the garage? No. It is meant to take you to the destination. But when I start the car, at the beginning, I do some work. I'm accelerating the car. After some time, you find the car is just moving because of the inertia of motion. You need not have to press the accelerator, not the brake, it's simply moving. So though it is working, actually it is not working. So that's the state we as a human being can attain the state of worklessness when we are working, if you can enter the state of flow. At the beginning, of course, we have to work hard. How long? Till my skills meet the challenges. If there are some challenge that I have to have some qualifications, some skills, that's the challenge. Till I reach that challenge, meet that challenge, I do have to work hard. But once my skills meet the challenge, now you develop that state of spontaneity. You can be in a state of flow. As Sri Ramakrishna used to say very nicely, that suppose there's a river with a bend. When you are going up the stream, as there's a bend, first you have to go up the stream, you're rowing. You have to use your full energy to row the boat. But the moment you reach the bend, now you get the favorable current. You can simply hold the row to keep the direction intact and then relax. With one hand, you are holding the row. In the other hand, you're enjoying a hubble bubble, a smoke. That's the way Sri Ramakrishna is with a nice, what you say that a, a, with a nice picture is giving you the explanation that how this karma can take us to the state of spontaneity. First, most probably we have to work with hard and then as he used to say, the adept dancer never will have a false step. His step is always in rhythm. Even when he's instructing the students, the music is on the background. Half of his mind is with the student, but as she has reached the state of spontaneity, this foot will be in the rhythm. The students will have to really be very, very focused as for the music is concerned because they're yet to learn. But once you have learned, it has become something spontaneous. So the action reaches states of spontaneity. Though you are acting, as such, you're not acting. And that's the state which can give you the tremendous joy, the bliss, because all the worries and the tensions have fallen off. The baggage which are in the form of worries, tensions, expectations, we are always carrying, that has fallen off, giving you a sense of let go. And that's the thing. You will find that how nicely Bhagavan, even without bringing in the concept of the spiritual dimension of our existence, is explaining karma yoga for the entire humanity. Even if he is an atheist, he can resort to the karma yoga when we can resort it with that idea that actions has to be performance oriented, not result oriented. So after that, from the ninth slok, this sloka, the third chapter, which we are going to take today, we will, we will find that 
Bhagavad Gita will enter into a concept of Yajna. Now this Yajna generally means fire sacrifice. That's a limited way of understanding that in the Vedic age, the, all the forces of nature were personified. Like Varuna Devata, the god of wind, Indra, the god of rain. Now we know that rain, wind, these are the things which are essential for life. But sometimes they can be, they can just become chaotic. There can be flood, there can be storm. So this, all the forces of nature were personified as the devas, devatas, and the idea of propitiating them came. That fire sacrifice, in the fire sacrifice, what we do, we offer oblations. When the oblations are offered, that is carried up, the fire always moves up. It carries up the oblations as if to all the devatas. The fire was considered as the mouth of all the devas. There was a basic idea behind all the yajyas that we offer oblations to the devas to propitiate them so that they are pleased with us and in return, they will give us rain just in quantity, not less, not more. The wind, just as much as it's required for our breathing, not less, not more. So all this, this that the idea of give and take, we offer something to the divine and in return, he's pleased and he gives us the basic amenities for our living. So this idea of give and take, we will find was later expanded. Even in the Vedic period, in the Satapata Brahmana, we will find the idea of Yajna has been expanded. It's no more just the fire sacrifice. The Vedic society realized that it is not just the fire sacrifice, that ritual. Actually, the entire world is governed by Yajna. And this in Satapata Brahmana, that what in the present language we can call this translate it is, it is the idea of interdependence. It is the idea of cycle. Just say the rain, how it rain happens. When the sun is there, the water evaporates, it becomes cloud, and again it falls back as water as rain. So the cycle, this is all the cycle, this yajna chakra, everywhere. Everything is interdependent. As I still remember, that Professor George Smoot, he was a Nobel laureate, and he visited India, and he was he had a, he was willing to meet the school students. So in IIT Kharagpur, a seminar was arranged where all the students were invited. Where uh, the professor, Professor Smoot, uh, this George Smoot, he tried to explain that his findings in as easy language as possible. It was about 45 minutes deliberation. After that, he opened up the session for the students that you ask questions and whatever questions you feel and I will answer. So the question as the session was going on and suddenly uh, George Smoot himself uh, with a smile in his face asked the students, the students were all school students from the eighth standard to the 12th standard, uh, from sixth standard to the 12th standard. So ask the students, have you seen an alien? So there was no answer. And then he himself asked, do you want to see an alien? And then all the this, this all small boys and girls with an uproar, they all raised their hand. Yes, they all want to see an alien. 
And then Professor George Smith told, well, you do one thing. You see it every day. Today, again, you go back and stand in front of the mirror. You will see the alien. The idea is that this body, even the physical body, nothing of this, which this physical body is constituted, is, I can call it my own. That we call that this earth is nothing but the star dust. So not a single mineral, not a single atom, not a single element has been created on this earth. It is just the star dust from the star, in the core of the star, this has been created. And this all somehow is in, in various forms is getting combined, assimilated to form my body. In, in our, our Bhagavatam, we just study that Krishna just ate a lump of mud, a clay. He took just the children, whatever they find, they eat. So, so this Krishna also is from Gopala. He put in his mouth a mound of clay. And Yashoda, the mother, she wanted to get it back. Now, naturally, it's not something to eat. So she was pleading Krishna, please, please throw it out. But Krishna was not listening. At last, mother pressed the cheeks to forcefully open the mouth. And the moment Krishna's mouth was open, she saw the entire universe there. And we naturally, we feel mystified that what's there. But even uh, from our scientific point of view, we can say that as we don't have the paradigm, the way of looking as Yeshoda had, most probably we cannot see the Vishwaru. In the clay of mud, if you go to the Mars, there is no soil. In any planet, there is no soil. In this earth, we have this soil. Even in the desert you go, there is no soil. It is all sand and sand only. Soil means where there is life, there can be soil. Some plant, some living organism has died, decomposed, mixed with the soil, mixed with the sand in time. That got converted into soil. Soil means something organic must be there. So where there is soil, it speaks there must be some tree. Where there's a tree, it speaks there must be the sun. Without sun, you cannot think of the tree. There is the sun, there's water, there's all the minerals. So all the stars come into existence. That the, from the ground, what does, through the roots, the plant is taking. There's the minerals, all the things, there's all the, through the fertilizers, all the minerals are coming. The water, the air, the entire universe, you can see in this a cloud of clay, if you can really see, if you can really see. The entire universe is there. What it speaks, nothing in this universe lies as a discrete, separate entity. There's a constant intermingling of the elements, energy, matter, transformations constantly going on. That everything is a flow. I, what I think myself as a discrete unit is just a part of that flow for the time being. I can at the most say I'm a whirlpool. For the time being, it appears that it has some entity, but the whirlpool also, whatever it gathers in after some time, it will leave, it will again gather in something. So that's what we are doing life after life. We are like the whirlpool moving. So this is a state of this interdependence. So in Satapata Brahmana, we find that Yajna has now been expanded to that idea that this entire universe is nothing but Yajna. That's some is, is give and take. Something you are taking and something you are giving back. And that's how it's, it forms a chain. It's, 
this law of interdependence forms a chain which just enables all the cycles this oxygen cycle nitrogen cycle whatever you say is possible is because of all these chains all these transformations which are happening so to that extent the weather has expanded in the, in the due course the idea of yagya bhagavad gita takes that expanded idea of yagya and then the entire karma yoga is developed on that so now we will try to understand this idea of karma yoga based on the concept of yagya how it has been uh, uniquely developed in the bhagavad gita so now <clears throat> bhagavad gita is the scripture of synthesis that all the various philosophies has been wonderfully synthesized to give you a very all comprehensive view of the reality so let us try to understand what bhagavad gita has done so in the bhagavad gita you will find that the first concept of synthesis is the synthesis of the sankhya and the vedanta and it is through this concept of yagya which is described in this chapter the third and in the fourth chapter now what is sankhya philosophy in brief that the ultimate reality consists of two two ultimate realities are there in two categories one is purusha and other is the prakriti purusha is like the seed prakriti is like the soil just give you an example so prakriti is one like the soil purusha is many there are many there can be innumerable seeds this purusha is the pure consciousness it is unchanging it is beyond the body and the mind and there are many purushas that do not work it is like the witness and prakriti is only one when the purusha comes in association with the prakriti then the entire what you say there's the world of phenomena this prapancha the universe is pops up it evolves so what's the basic uh, our goal of life that is because of ignorance somehow i the purusha the con- this conscious principle have got associated with the prakriti which results in this delusion i have to dissociate dissociate myself from prakriti and once i dissociate myself i am that actionless purusha so the all the actions is bound to follow since sankhya yoga the all the actions has bound to follow now if bhagavad gita was preaching sankhya yoga then in no way sri krishna would have told arjuna to fight the idea of fight does fighting doesn't come that if the soul is inactive drop all actions go back to the go to the forest and dive deep in the contemplation get on what you said absorb with your atma this concept of fight doesn't come so that is the drawback of the sankhya philosophy if inaction is the ultimate state of liberation then arjuna's refusal to flight will be absolutely justified and that's what that robert we find that krishna is saying that stand up uttishtha that Uh, that again stand up and just claim your masma gama part that from where this unmanness has came the stand up fight so this how bhagavad gita justifies that so this bhagavad gita has overcome this idea of the sankhya the separation of the prakriti and the purusha by there are four main uh, approaches are there the first approach is a consists through the concept of yagya in the third and the fourth chapter the another next approach will be in the 7th chapter another approach will be in the 8th chapter and the last approach the concept of purushottama will be in the 15th chapter so these are there are the four such paradigms through which bhagavad gita will be synthesizing the sankhya yoga with the vedanta so the other three we will take up gradually 
Today, as we enter into the concept of yagya, first we try to understand that how through the concept of yagya, Bhagavad Gita is trying to synthesize the Sankhya and the Vedanta. So the first is this concept of yagya, where we will find <clears throat> that through the concept of yagya, Krishna, Bhagavan Krishna is divinizing the entire creation. That nothing, as Swami Vivekananda used to say, nothing is secular. Everything is spiritual. If the world is a projection of the divine, then my interaction with the world is actually protection, is by interaction with the divine. What is appearing as the world? That as Swamiji used to say, very this Swami Vivekananda's words are very interesting. He used to say, I worship that God whom the ignorant calls as beings, as living beings, as human beings. That what I see as a human being, you see as a human being or any other creature actually is the divine and divine alone. So I worship that God whom the ignorant call human beings. So what's the wonderful idea that if the entire creation is the divine and divine alone, then where is the question of secular? Whatever I do is spiritual. Only I have to have that awareness of it. So how Bhagavad Gita divinizes the entire world. So we'll find that as we told that in the ancient Vedic period, the idea of the yajna, the fire sacrifice, has been expanded in the Satapata Brahmana. In the later phase of uh, Vedic periods, we find that Yadgya's idea has been expanded just as we were describing. Now, Bhagavad Gita takes this idea. It takes this idea and it develops the basis. It, it develops it as the basis of the Karma Yoga of the surplus world. So the slokas which we will be studying in this chapter, let us just take them as a nutshell to have an idea that how the yajna, the idea of yajna helps to divinize the entire world and synthesize the Sankhya and the Vedanta. So in the 14th sloka of this chapter, now we are in the ninth, but let us take the 14th and the 15th to understand that how the idea of yajna has been expanded in Bhagavad Gita to include the entire creation as the divine and divine alone. So how the, the 14th sloka it says, Annat bhavanti bhutani parjanyat annasambhava yagyat bhavati parjanyo yagya karma samudbhava and the 15th says karma brahmodbhavam vidhi brahmak sharat samudbhavam tasmat sarvagatan brahma nityam yagye pratishtitam. So how everything came from the Brahman and Brahman alone. What's this? That all beings comes from food. So we all understand. Annad bhavanti bhutani. This food sustains us. Our so-called physical body, that's why it's called annamaya kosha. It is a food which gets assimilated and gets converted into your physical body. So all the beings comes from food. So this is in one way you have to understand the yagya. And the idea of yagya has been explained in the Bhagavad Gita specifically with this example. That from food comes all beings. Now food comes from rain. There's the cycle. The food comes from rain. From rain comes from yagya. So here they're saying rain comes from yagya. We will come. What that yagya is mean? Yagya comes from karma. Karma comes from brahma. And Brahman, Brahman is not Brahman, it is Brahma, the creator, the cosmic mind. And Brahma comes from 
the impersonal absolute akshara. This Brahma means not the absolute, it means the this cosmic mind, the absolute finds expression as the cosmic mind, that is Brahma. Brahma finds expression as karma. So when the absolute finds expression as the cosmic mind, first expression of the universe is energy. Karma, the dynamic aspect is energy. And that energy is not chaotic. It is not chaotic. It is not just an explosion. If it was chaotic, there would, this creation wouldn't have been possible. It follows this, all this karma, this energy follows certain laws. One of those laws is yagya. What's that? <clears throat> that all this, uh, this energy, this action, <clears throat> the uh, absolute, uh, this, uh, what is the imperishable reality when finds expression as the cosmic mind, this mind is fi finding expression as the action. Action means the dynamism, the shakti. That shakti follows certain laws. In the physical world, just you will find the laws are followed. That gravitation is something universal. That how I can just send a rocket to the Mars. Because I know the law of gravitation, which is applicable here, is applicable there too. And I, to the precision, can send the Mars, the rovers, Everything is possible that as Einstein used to say, that the most incomprehensible fact of the universe is that it is comprehensible. But how that such a huge universe, I as a human being, such a small creature crawling on this earth can understand this universe only because it follows certain laws. Now, when something is following that everything can be explained by equations and sometimes the science says that everything can be explained. Mathematics can explain everything. But you know the Stephen Hawking, who never believed in God, he in his last book is asking a very interesting question. Who fuels those equations? Can the equation by itself simply sustain? From where who fuels those equations? And this line actually made me uh, just related with Ramakrishna's work. That a small child, <clears throat> when he sees that all the vegetables are boiling in the water. In the water, the vegetables are boiling because of the froth, they're jumping as if they're jumping. The small child thinks they're all living. And it comes and shouts and says, mother, mother, see these vegetables, they're all alive, they're just jumping. And mother to explain that it is not the vegetables, it is the fire which makes them jump, just removes the furnace from the bottom of the cauldron and all the jumping stops. So now relate this word that who fires those equations? That's all this expression of energy. That energy also is finding expression as equations, as rhythm. You know that in our scriptures, they say that Om, the ultimate reality, finds expression as rim, which speaks of energy. Rim is the vachak of energy. And that rim again finds expression as rhythm. Rhythm speaks of the, all the laws, the rhythm behind the creation. So in the physical world, that I can find that the laws of electromagnetism, the laws of gravity, the law, this the weak nuclear force, the, the strong nuclear force, it is these are all something universal with which the entire universe can be explained. And once you know it, you know that how this all these laws are working. Similarly, in the psychic level, there are certain laws which are working. One is this idea of this interdependence. That's the idea of yagya. <clears throat> Everything is there in the give and take. 
nothing can stand apart separately is a constant inter this inter that's a, what is intermingling here also that example has been given that we take that from, if you just take this idea of yagya as the fire sacrifice it makes no sense that all beings came from food food came from rain and rain comes from yagya and that's why nowadays even in india we find that when there is no rain there is some drought for few years and suddenly we will find some huge yagyas are going on with the idea from the yagya the rain will come so sometimes the limited idea of the scriptures can really, really lead to some ridiculous ideas we don't say that it doesn't happen maybe there may be some mysticism behind it but the, what's the basic idea behind it that if you look at that how that uh, the yagya chakra is going on that yagya what is yagya is going on and the plant the huge trees are there that the food from where it comes from this uh, we have to have the vegetation the vegetation thrives on rain if on rain the vegetation thrives but here again the yagya is going on once you have the huge trees the leaves are the evapotranspirators they are just like the way when you pour something on the fire the fire moves up flares up here also something is flaring up the water is being carried from the leaves again back as clouds a very interesting thing we think it is the ocean surface is there for evaporation but you know that the leaves are the most efficient evapotranspirators the entire ocean our agricultural field just constitute only 50% of the clouds which are formed another 50% is formed because of this leaves the leaves they have transpired that's why now the question of afforestation has started where if there is no forest there is no rain the it this forest actually contributes to the most of the rain the maximum 50% rain is uh, even in summer season it is even 60% where the sun rays are very strong 60% of the rain is because of the forest the leaves so now if you just extend the idea of yagya as has been explained that satapatha brahma that everything is interdependent so here that interdependence how can we explain the tree is dependent on the rain and the rain is dependent on the tree so here the yagya starts so this yagya speaks of what the law of interdependence this is based on karma this action every the world is nothing but action nothing is static that comes from the cosmic mind the cosmic mind has designed this all this thing and that cosmic mind is from brahma so what's the idea that what you see as a nature actually is not nature it is a brahman who is finding expression as the universe through all these laws so now just see you can easily that instead of that now instead of where there is drought instead of doing yagya we will think let us do the real yagya of planting trees let us not simply exploit the world <clears throat> this world there is a, a wonderful balance between the this our this our living beings and the nature that balance has to be maintained that again speaks of yagya so all beings knowingly and unknowingly have to contribute something to this universal yagya chakra we may say we may take many things from life but we must also return something to life that's why in the vedic society in the later period they developed the idea of pancha yagya that yagya is not only the fire sacrifice the pitri yagya 
Bhuta Yajya, Ri Yajya, all these ideas, what was there? That whatever you take, that Rishi Yajya, that in the form of this, uh, that this, the Rishis have contributed to the society. Well, how I pay back? By studying the scriptures. That's how I keep the knowledge alive. I study the scripture, I try to assimilate them, I try to live my life according to them. So that becomes a Rishi Yajya, Deva Yajya, speaks with things, Deva Yajya means that offering something to the Devas, but the Devas actually are the personification of the nature. So the nature sustains us, I sustain nature through all the planting trees, even in the Vedic society, the planting trees considered as a Yajya, that is a part of the Deva Yajya, Bhuta Yajya, feed the animals. So this idea, we think we only feed animals, no. All other creatures, even this idea of yajna shishta, that after offering whatever remains that you take, that is naturally followed in the animal kingdom. When we contribute, give something to the animals, we think that we are compassionate. But even unknowingly, by based on instinct, the animal world is doing that. When the lion catches its prey, it, when it is satiated, it never looks back at the remaining portion of the prey. That's just left out. <clears throat> the scavengers of the forest, they come. The hyenas, the cheetahs, the jackals, they will come. They will be waiting hidingly. That when the lion leaves, when he leaves, whatever is left over, they feed on it. This is the see the remaining. No one is grabbing it. And when <clears throat> they are feeding on it, the what you say, the vulture is sitting on the tree, top of the tree. It is also waiting. It knows I also have its share. It will have its share. Everyone has a share. The lion never says, I have, I have just caught the prey, so everything belongs to me. Everything has, everyone has the share. And as a human being, what we do, we, if we go to the market, something is very cheap. The price has reduced. I buy the huge crate, bring, I cannot eat it totally. I just eat one or two mangoes, the remaining goes in the fridge. Again, tomorrow. So as a human being, we start holding. So that's why the do's and don'ts come. The scripture has to come on the way and say, don't hold. If I hold, what happens? The balance is disturbed. How it is disturbed? You will find that the last in the last decade, there was this Occupy movement, the Wall Street's famous. What is the basic idea of that Occupy movement? That the 99% of the world's wealth is between 1% of the population. We have to occupy. Occupy means get back. It is my wealth. And now the, all the government have got aware of, has become aware of the fact be, uh, because of these movements. You will find their, that uh, what you say, the developing the tax policies in such a way that the economy can be a bit more balanced. So everywhere you find that the law has to work, that stealing can be in two ways. I steal, uh, the theft can be in two ways. I steal some other's property that is of course a theft. And I do not pay the tax back properly. That is also a theft. That Bhagavad Gita will be saying in the idea of Yajna Shishta. Yajna, when society has what I am, is the contribution of the society. I think it is a product of my intelligence. Is it really a product of my intelligence? However intelligent I may be, unless those university campuses are there, your intelligence has not built them. The professors, those are paid by the government, in turn, their salary comes from the tax money which you are paying. So the entire society has built you up. And naturally, when <clears throat> now you're earning, you have to pay back as the tax. 
So again, this concept of yajna is there. So unless you are taking part in it, you the Bhagavad Gita will say that you are just a thief. You are a thief. That stealing doesn't mean just to steal others' property. That is not only theft. When I'm not returning back what I have got, that also is a theft. So now Bhagavad Gita will find, and then the next fourth chapter, this famous mantra will come. Brahmaharpanam Brahmahavi. After saying that everything is a yajna, from Brahman only it has came. At last, as a conclusion, it will say, this is Brahman, who is the offering, who is the oblation, who is the fire, who is the act of offering, the one who is offering his Brahman, <coughs> the thing on which it is offered, it is Brahman. So at last, it is concluding that way. So that's how you have to divineize the thinking that whatever you're doing is just an offering to Brahman and Brahman alone. So those who is not following this, his life is in vain. Evam pravartitam chakram in the 16th sloka it will be mentioned. Nanu vartayatihaya aghayu rindriyarama mogham patha sajivati. That his life is in vain. He is just living an indulgent life without being responsible. The word responsible is very interesting. The word responsible is responsibility is responsibility. That as a human being, I have the ability to respond in one way or the other. The other animals are guided by instinct. That the question of ability doesn't come. The nature has given them the instinct and they are bound to uh, act as per their instinct. As a human being, not even the devas, not even the lower beings, not even any higher beings, the human beings alone are having that responsibility, the ability to respond. I can do, uh, or I may not do, or I may do in a different way. Kartum, akartum, anyatha kartum. So this ability, this is what, <clears throat> which speaks of our paradigm, that how we have to take the life. This same action, which is the cause of the bondage, can be the cause of liberation. If we just change the orientation, we don't have to change the course of our action that I have to leave all those things and go and deep in the forest and contemplate. What you are doing, you can go on, continue to do the same thing, but your orientation has to be changed. So that's the idea, which through the concept of yajna, the very first concept in Bhagavad Gita, which comes in this third and the fourth chapter, through this concept, they will bring the idea of all the actions as an offering to the divine. So when you're offering, in offering, there's no question of asking back, back in return. I offer, and now what you do with it is yours. That generally we say that after giving something to someone, you should not go on saying that I have given such and such thing to such and such person. What that speaks of, you have not given. Because still you have the idea of ownership. That's why you are saying I have given, I have given. It is mine, I have given. Once you have given, you should forget. So the same thing is being indicated here. When you have offered something, how can I just wait for the, ask for the result? It has been offered. It is that God is working through me. Even the mother cannot claim that I love my child. Mother cannot claim. You say, how come? I love so much. You find that you are bound to love. God has created the universe in such a way not a single mother is there who can help herself without loving the child. Even you go to the animal kingdom, but you are programmed in such a way that the child will generate love in you, you're bound to love. If seeing a beggar, you feel like giving a pence to him, 
you think, oh, I am so uh, compassionate. No, that you have been built in such a way that the compassion works. Nowadays, they say our genes are altruistic, that we are somehow to relate to this existence through synergy, through compassion. If we can do that, you evolve, the entire nature evolves. Contrary to that, if you just think I will exist at the cost of others, you yourself cause your annihilation and, and also the annihilation of others, the others' destruction. Swami Vivekananda used to give a nice example that the evolution doesn't speak of competition with others. Now, there was a huge misunderstanding of the Darwin's theory. Darwin's theory speaks, do speak of that struggle for existence and survival of the fetus. From that, this, this idea when it was misinterpreted, it has created a devastating war in the world, you know? The second world war is a product of Darwin's theory. Would you believe? Just I will just, just will give an indication that it is not actually Darwin's theory, which has uh, the real theory has resulted in the second world war, the misrepresentation of Darwin's theory that he do say, speaks of struggle of existence and survival of the fittest. Based on this idea, the Nietzsche, the philosopher, is a very famous philosopher. He interpreted that there will be variation as per the Darwin's law. Some will be more fit to exist. Others won't be that uh, equipped to strive for existence. So he then the, the struggle the, as uh, the survival of the fittest is the final thing. Why not we accelerate it? by getting rid of those who are not sufficiently fit to exist. And all the Holocaust is a product of that. Nietzsche, the, our Hitler was an ardent devotee of Nietzsche. So based on that, that ethnic cleansing, everything came from that. It was a wrong interpretation of the Darwin's theory. It's not through competition by annihilation of others, but I live at the cost of others that evolution has happened. If you really study evolution, wherever competition did happen. But what was the competition? Where a group, a particular group of species were cooperating, they evolved. Those who were not cooperating, they were annihilated in the due course of time. You go to this, that in, the, in Australia, that uh, the coral reef, the Great Barrier Reef, this, uh, it's, it's a big, the, one of the most wonderful example of synergy. For millions, for thousands of years, even millions of years, those all those so-called creatures which are extremely vulnerable are thriving because they have formed a wonderful synergy. In the forest, you go the redwood this forest. Their roots are never very deep; they are very shallow, but they stand for hundreds of years. How that even a small uh, that what you say a small uh, 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 what is it? When is, uh, the small sapling comes out of the redwood tree, the entire redwood forest, the big trees, they will extend their root and intertwine the small roots of this plant with them to form a wonderful foundation. So though they are shallow, you know, for any building, the foundation has to be that uh, the more the, the all the beams are connected, the more it becomes stable. So like that, it has become a beam structure. So even storm cannot affect them. Nothing can affect them. Rain, storm. So because they're all intertwined. 
it speaks of synergy. The synergy speaks of what? That you know that a certain that uh, the summation of parts is always uh, greater. That uh, if you just mathematically sum this in mathematics, two plus two is four, but it never happens really in biology. Just suppose there is a thread. I intertwine that that thread can just bear a load of say two kilos. Beyond two kilos, it snaps. Now I intertwine it with another same thread. As per mathematics, now it will just somehow bear four kilo load, isn't it? Two plus two. But it has been found it is actually only three times, four times. It will be bearing six kilos, eight kilos, even 10 kilos load it can bear. So when they intertwine, the, the, their productivity, become, productivity becomes more than the, just the summation of their strength. So that's synergy. And the entire world is governed by this synergy. And that's what the concept of EMK. That you, with the instrument, that mother's love is something wonderful we were speaking. But when the problem comes, when the mother starts thinking, I am loving the child so much, I did so much for the child, and now he has grown up. And even if I say something for, for his good, he immediately rebukes me back. And I don't, I, I, I am such a good mother, I don't expect anything. When he grows, he'll have to lead his life. But just see, he's rebuking, he's just speaking back, and he feels hard, very hard. But the child, just whatever I say, what is happening actually, there is expectation. That at least I expect this, I do so much. The idea here in the Bhagavad of Yagya is that you are not doing. The plan of the universe is such through you, the love has to pour out. It will take off the creation and nature will be sustained. There you are just the instrument. And if that's the fact, then why should any expectation should be there? I do as an instrument, I'm aware of the fact God is working through me. I am just a pain in the hand of the divine. The divine is writing the script. Can the pain ever claim that I am the author of the book? You cannot claim. It's the author, the one who is holding the pain. It is his. He is writing through me. All the love, that the love for the children, love for the world, whatever I have, it is his. I'm just the instrument. I'm just happy in doing it. And there it ends. I don't expect back anything. So here also the concept of that yagya as an offering comes. That you are a part of this entire cosmos, this huge gamut. You are just playing your role and you're happy to play a role, being a part of this uh, that huge yagya which is going on, you're happy to be a part of this play. You're the part of this lila of the divine, of the God's play. And you are happy to be just a part of that. I don't expect anything. It is work, God who is working through me and there it ends. So this is the idea, the more we can be aware of, nothing special you are doing. The mother still is taking care of the child. Instead of taking care of the child with that worldly idea, my child, my child, you can always think that he, this child is not mine. It just came through me. I have not created it. It with his own samskaras, it just take birth, thinking that it will have favorable circumstances. And I give that circumstances and it grows in its own way. I can never, I can nurture a plant, a mango tree to get a good mango. But just by watering the mango tree, I cannot get a jackfruit or an apple out of it. So they have come with their own samskaras. They can, with that, all those nurturing, they will grow as per their samskara. I cannot change the course, total course. 
I can just simply nurture for which it is meant. And that I also don't know. I also don't know what the sanskaras is, that it will take its own course when they, as the child starts growing, it will start blooming in its own way. So there I shouldn't be expecting. I, I should be happy that what was what has to be done, I have done. I'm satisfied that I actually have no stones, kept no stones unturned as per my effort in doing the thing I've done. I've done everything. And there my work ends. And if we have expectation, we are bound to suffer. All the suffering comes from that expectation. The moment we can go beyond that expectation and how to go beyond that expectation by always being aware of the fact. And this is a fact. It's not something mere an imagination. In this world, nothing, not a single decision is taken by me. I am neither the doer nor the enjoyer. That I, as per my samskar, is a bundle of mental modules which are constantly taking its own decision, giving me a sense that I am taking the decision. I'm just the mere instrument. I'm doing my part of work. The thing happens as per the collective interest is concerned, that in the world as such has a collective interest. It, just as when I'm going through the traffic, my personal interest is that all the light should be green. Can it ever happen? There's a, something called collective interest. I will sometimes get the green, sometimes get the red signal. That I, my, my individual interest has to be guided by that collective interest. And that happens when I am more and more aware of the collective welfare, not of the individual thing. And there, the idea of this limited individuality falls off, giving you the idea of the divine through, uh, finding expression through all the actions through that rhythm of which is known as Yerke. So this is a very, very much all comprehensive idea of yajna, which has been spoken of in the Bhagavad Gita, which will be substantiated by the succeeding slokas. We will that the very next sloka will say we are not uh, we are not going to describe it just elaborately. Just we will give a hint. Sahayajna prajāsrishto. When purovāche prajāpati, prajāpati means Brahma, the creator, the the one who has created this universe, this prajāpati. When he has created, he has created this universe along with yajna, sahayajna. So now you, if you take the yajna as a fire sacrifice, it won't make any sense. But when he created, he created with sacrifice, many understand that way and just give importance to that fire sacrifice as a be all and end all for existence. It can be at the most for the human being. Who else is creating yajna? That also to a particular culture, just the Vedic culture. Who else the other Abrahamic religions are doing yajna? No one does. But when Bhagavan is saying that he has created the entire universe with Yajna, that Yajna is having that expanded idea, this idea of interdependence. Sahayajna prajasrishtva purovacha prajapati anena prasavishvadhyam eshavo srishtva kamatu. That this become your milching cow. Like a, you know that in the, this idea of kamadhu, that kamadhenu, the cow which gives milk, will go on giving milk. There's no end to its supply. So this idea, this, if you conduct your life with this idea of yajna, all your desires can be cherished by this yajna just the way uh, you can get infinite milk from kamadhenu. So let this yajna become your kamadhenu. By this you shall prosper and this shall be the kamadhenu, the milch cow of your desires. It is only through that interdependence you flourish. The more you think of just like they say that we have in the present society of consumerism, we have become like the cancer cells. 
the inner body when the cells few cells become cancer as carcinogenic what happens they forget that they have to grow along with the body they have to cooperate they take the same food same food which is coming through your uh, food and assimilated and coming through the blood they take as much as possible and they start growing beyond all proportion the entire body is saying just don't grow so much please just grow. you have to grow all the cells are growing dying and growing grow in proportion but they won't listen they are growing beyond all proportion that they are consuming and growing consuming and growing and then what happens that becomes the cause of the death of the person and then these carcinogenic cells also won't live this this, this is also uh, with the death of the person they also die so the entire society has become carcinogenic because of this idea of consumerism the materialism which is the bane of all the so called prosperity that's the thing which has been i actually indicated by bhagwan through the concept of yagya that lead this life being aware of this idea of interdependence yagya everything came from god everything is a divine conduct your life not with the idea of consuming be a part of that yagya when he has became this world he has he follows the law of this interdependence this all the actions are following the law of interdependence be aware of that and just be a part of that flow don't try to grab anything so the sahayagya prajasrishtva the prajapati the brahma having in the beginning created mankind together with yagya has created the entire creation with this yagya and said you just go and prosper let this yagya be your belching trough so we will i take up this sloka and elaborate it with more again in the next class so with this we stop our discussion today thank you all namaskar